Coming soon in the spring of 2024, Dr. Paul Zeitz, physician, epidemiologist, and tenacious award-winning advocate for global justice and human rights, will be releasing his groundbreaking handbook, Revolutionary Optimism, Seven Steps for Living as a Love-Centered Activist. Revolutionary optimism galvanizes us on the path of self-liberation and invites us to unify with others to catalyze our collective liberation. Together, we can create a brighter tomorrow for all humanity, all life on Earth, and for all future generations. Stay tuned for information on how to pre-order your copy. Revolutionary Optimism, Seven Steps for Living as a Love-Centered Activist. Coming soon to inspire you. It's go time! Welcome to Revolutionary Optimism. Living at this time in history, we are challenged with a convergence of crises that is affecting our daily lives. Issues like economic hardship, a teetering democracy, and the worsening climate emergency have left many Americans feeling more despair than ever. To respond to the challenging times we are living through, physician, humanitarian, and social justice advocate Dr. Paul Zeitz has identified revolutionary optimism as a new cure for hopelessness, despair, and cynicism. Revolutionary optimism is itself an infectious, contagious, self-created way of living and connecting with others on the path of love. Once you commit yourself as a revolutionary optimist, you can bravely unleash your personal power, hashtag unify with others, and accelerate action for our collective repair, justice, and peace. On this podcast, Dr. Zeitz is working to provide you with perspectives from leaders fighting for equity, justice, and peace on their strategies, insights, and tools for overcoming adversity and driving forward transformative solutions with unbridled revolutionary optimism and real-world pragmatism. In this episode, Dr. Zeitz is talking with Daniela Ballou Ayers, founder and CEO of the Leadership Now Project, a national membership organization of business and thought leaders committed to fixing American democracy. Daniela began her career at Bain & Company, working across the firm's offices in the U.S., South Africa, and the U.K. From there, she became a founding partner at Dahlberg, where she led the America's business and transformed the startup into the largest social impact strategy firm with 25 offices worldwide. She spent five years in the Obama administration as the senior advisor for development to the Secretary of State, serving under Secretaries Clinton and Kerry. Daniela's perspectives have been featured in the Harvard Business Review, the New York Times, Fast Company, Politico, and the World Economic Forum, among others. Daniela is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and was a 2014 World Economic Forum Young Global Leader. She holds an MBA from Harvard Business School, an MPA from the Kennedy School, and graduated cum laude from Cornell with a BS in Operations Research and Industrial Engineering. Here's your host, Dr. Paul Zeitz. Thank you for joining the podcast today. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Thanks, Paul. So the first question is really about uh, you personally. And I wanted to ask you, uh, when you were at the State Department and then you transitioned out of it, uh, did you have an aha moment when you were working on sustainable development, you were inside the government, and then you, something happened in you, and I'm not quite sure what it was, that brought you into uh, this Leadership Now project work, which is about uh, optimizing and strengthening our democracy. So can you tell us like what was going on for you inside? Sure, no, thanks for the question. Um, I'm gonna make that into two aha moments <laughs> that combined, I think, led to my work in this area. The first was shortly after joining the State Department. 
2012. And I joined, I was an atypical uh, appointee in the Obama administration. I had not uh, worked on campaigns or been in a think tank or been a big donor. I was more of an expert and a business person who'd worked on issues related to economic, international economic development, global health, and otherwise in uh, a business context. And as incredible as it was to move to Washington and join uh, an administration I respected and uh, work with uh, leaders, I was struck within a few months of uh, joining government that our institutions did seem to be unable to keep up with what a rapidly changing world. I joined the State Department a few weeks after the WikiLeaks scandal. I was seeing Congress was unable to respond to many of the demands. And it genuinely made me nervous to see what seemed like a dramatic disconnect between our public institutions and what I had experienced uh, in business and elsewhere. And as an engineer, um, studying some of the most innovative systems um, in my degrees uh, earlier on in my career. So that was my first one where I, I had this overriding feeling in government and concern that these were disruptable systems, that our public institutions were disruptable um, because they um, were lagging the speed at which many of um, that the way technology was advancing with the internet, the way other systems uh, were evolving. The second aha moment was uh, shortly after the 2016 election. I was still serving in government. We obviously had a highly uh, contentious election. It revealed a lot of polarization. Trump won the election and, and was in a way that was unexpected, which was a surprise to many. And it, it raised a lot of questions around how did we not understand each other in this country in a way to know that there were these very big divides. I was grappling with trying to understand that, uh, and I happened to uh, go to um, leave Washington for a bit and go up to an executive education course at Harvard that was focused on get, getting women on corporate boards, unrelated to any of these issues, to clear my mind. And there was a session, though, by Professor David Moss, a historian, who started the session by explaining all of the data around how Americans' faith in democracy had declined over uh, the decades. Uh, I was already thinking about the need for new institutions, for something like leadership now to emerge after uh, the election. But I think that that data and his analysis of these underpinning issues, to me, created a lot of clarity around um, what were some of the factors that were leading us to we were that where we were that were beyond just the proximate election. Uh, so that started really a journey for me and for others that I was working with um, to tap into some amazing academic minds, tap into amazing business minds, use my networks in a different way than I had in the past uh, to identify what could be the type of new coalition and entity that would have a meaningful impact on where we were. Because if I learned nothing else in work to solve problems like where we collaborated on global HIV, on the sustainable development goals, you really have to think about what's the kind of tent you're building? How big is it? Who sits in it? How do you take different actors 
who have different ways of operating and get them to come together in coalition. I mean, in, in, in reaching the PEPFAR legislation, which you were very involved in, you had to figure out a way for evangelicals and uh, the LGBT community and progressive groups and conservative you know, groups to all come together in a way that didn't ask them to all change the nature of how they worked and what they cared about at its core, but to come together around a common goal. And I think democracy is that kind of issue where we can create a tent that includes most of America and really, um, and ideally, hopefully all of America and saying we need a strong democracy um, and redefining how we think about our obligations as citizens, about how we think about our businesses and our, uh, our political systems uh, so that we have kind of a long-term way out of the um, polarizations and uh, frustration that I think so many of us feel with uh, where we are politically. Yeah, thank you for that. And I want to acknowledge you because you've uh, sensed that there was dysfunction in the government in your first aha moment and it could operate better maybe. And then in the moment of the 2016 election and the aftermath, you really saw that there was something wrong and sick about our democracy. And you just didn't go along and do whatever you were doing. You innovated and you're very entrepreneurial and you created the Leadership Now Project, which has been up and running for about seven years. Um, so can you tell us what is the Leadership Now Project and what are you trying to accomplish with uh, business leaders and uh, are you dealing, like you mentioned cross-partisan mobilization. So I'd like to ask you to also touch on how you're working with uh, business leaders on both sides of the political aisle. Sure, well, um, I think after serving in uh, government for five years and being engaged in diplomatic efforts that were very interesting and satisfying in many ways, but um, was in the context of a large bureaucratic system. I, uh, my first question in trying to do something that was going to be meaningful, um, or my first orientation was that it had to start with an entrepreneurial <laughs> orientation and innovation orientation. Um, that the ways of working had to be different. The way that you brought people together had to be different um, and solve problems. So I have tried to, from the start of leadership now, um, say so how do we take really kind of lessons from the past around how you create influential coalitions while merging it with the best um, ways of working and organizing people and their ideas for action that are based on much more modern, innovative uh, models. So I've just been trying to be very conscious of the how in addition to the what. Like if, we, if the what was a really difficult problem, we have this democracy <laughs> that isn't working and that if we look at history, we know that if business people don't respond to threats to democracy because business, most people work in businesses, business, um, businesses are an influential part of the economy, they employ many people, and if business is on the sidelines while those threats happen, it's extremely hard to withstand um, threats to this, this system. And we had already, we're seeing some real erosion of norms of democracy and things um, that you know had been seen in Europe in the 1930s um, and elsewhere that were very worrying. So the Leadership Now Project 
um, was built on this on the premise that you can meaningfully build a coalition of business people who will thoughtfully engage in the system, but with targeted high impact engagement. So I always say there's a lot of way, a lot of things you can do in politics that have no impact. There's like infinite opportunities. <laughs> there's lots of meetings you could hold and you know discussions you can have and candidates you could support, et cetera, um, and just do it in a way that um, doesn't really move the needle. And I was committed to finding ways that we were being as strategic and targeted over time as we could while recognizing that part of the impact is have an endure, having an enduring, well-informed set of people who are willing to act in multiple ways over time. So we grounded, uh, we have grounded our focus, our organizational design is membership organizations have always been influential in American politics. I mean, whether that's Chambers of Commerce or the Sierra Club or Common Cause, their influence unions, all of these are membership organizations. Um, when you look at the data, those all of those organizations, there's thousands and thousands across the country, um, remain influential politically, but their influence has waned in various contexts. And in part because there are organizations that are often um, not very dynamic and, and modern. Um, so there was an opportunity to modernize that model for impact, but to retain some of the things that make membership organizations powerful. They represent real people. <laughs> they represent interests beyond just the people in the room. They the members are influential in their communities, in their businesses, et cetera. And they do have some of the features of you know, collective wisdom, right? It's not just um, if I were to start a PAC, for instance, um, raise um, resources from, let's say, a few very like-minded donors, maybe with great ideas. You know, we can think we can think bad things about a set of donors, but let's say you find a group of people who want to um, pull their resources. I and six people run an organization, and we have a large pool of dollars to advance an agenda that seems good, but. The limitations of that are profound because all you're doing is advancing a set of priorities with the people who already believe them in a narrow way. And I was interested in how do you attract people who are like-minded, who are influential in their networks and grow from there and keep building a common set of sensibilities and influences that will have incredible ripple effects. Mm -hmm. in a way. And yeah. when you're solving hard problems, I think there's a basic premise to solve a really hard problem. Like you just can't do it alone. And no matter how much smart people and, and money, like it just, it just doesn't work. Cause this is a problem of like how we work day to day, you know? So, um, so that has been really powerful to say, yes, we're going to be strategic. We're going to be targeted. We're going to look at in this, in state X gerrymandering is for instance, undermining the effectiveness of democracy. And this is a place where we can really build influence and focus people's efforts, et cetera. But doing that in, in the context of a group of members um, who have a broader understanding of why democracy matters and how in their day-to-day -day they're gonna do things differently. Yeah, that's extraordinary because the other membership organizations that you talked about for businesses like the Chambers of Commerce or industry associations are really about the business objective of that entity. And you're asking business leaders to say, 
There's another thing you should care about, which is the broader democratic democracy that we're living in that is allowing your companies to thrive. It may not be part of what they do as part of their business, but you're asking them to take that on. Do I have that right? Yes, although with the argument that in the short and long term, this genuinely threatens their business yeah. and their community. And so some of that's long-term, right? When you have um, increasing disenfranchisement, when you have political leaders don't, who don't represent the people, over time, they're gonna make really ultimately bad decisions for society that are gonna be bad to your business. But that also can be very short-term. For instance, in what we've seen with um, Disney, um, where the government of Florida has uh, taken a context where the state legislature is highly gerrymandered, the political culture has evolved to a place where some political leaders feel like it's okay to go after individuals or companies who say things they don't like and try to legislate against them. And, you know, Disney has seen the impact of that um, and where, you know, they had a direct retribution um, against their statements on LGBT issues that were um, in terms of like real legislative <laughs> um, decision-making um, that was uh, really detrimental to their business and asked them to operate in a way that would be bad for their business. And we believe that that's not just related to the specific issue that Disney stood out on, although it was certainly appropriate for them to step out on an issue that they thought was important, but it's the basic threat to our constitution and to American democracy and to capitalism that um, you will now have a political leader who doesn't like what you say uh, and will go after you. And the danger in that, in a country that's been built on free speech, et cetera, is, is, is fairly profound. So we want to kind of also make clear that some of the things that are happening are not just one-off um, concerns. They are signs of uh, systemic issues that none of us as individuals or as a company um, are immune from. Excellent, thank you for clarifying that. And can you comment on how you work with business leaders that are across the political spectrum? Sure, you know, I mentioned that um, my second aha moment when I went back to school for a moment <laughs> and started to really under appreciate and understand what was happening in democracy. And one of the first people I met with uh, while I was exploring what the opportunity was for leadership now was a Republican classmate of mine uh, from business school. And she had been really concerned about um, the erosion of democracy, about how are, you know, the conduct of the Republican candidate <laughs> in that election and what that meant. Um, and so I reached out to her to, to understand what were her concerns now. And we were very aligned, you know, even though we'd always respected each other, but we had been pretty squarely on <laughs> different sides of the political spectrum in the past, we found we were now in real common ground. And I have found that throughout that, um, those who've been concerned about democracy, you know, there's plenty of independents and Republicans and Democrats who share common concerns. I will say that as an organization, we have been clear though, that there are lines that once they're crossed are threats to democracy. Um, and those are election denialism, 
right? So denying the results of a legitimate election uh, is just a line that, you know, we believe any political leader, any business leader who crosses that line um, is not part of the tent that we're building. Um, right, right. You have and, this, yeah. um, you know, obviously um, political violence, you know, a d efforts to suppress participation, um, constrain the vote. Um, all of those are the most important uh, right lines, but we don't have to agree. There's lots of things we don't have to all agree on in terms of specifics of social or economic policy um, or otherwise, uh, and can still uh, agree on those points. Excellent. Great. That's fantastic. That does model some of the work that I've done in the past and I'm doing now even that you want to build a big tent that includes a, a range across the political spectrum, the, the common values, common uh, commitment to human rights and human dignity. And then there's like a line in the sand where, you know, uh, we can't cross that line if we're going to adhere yeah. to those values. So. We've That's avoided, really interesting, yeah. We've, for instance, avoided the word bipartisan and used the word principled um, because we are, we don't see our objective function being about how bipartisan we are per se. We see our objective function to be a cross-partisan coalition that is principled um, and that adheres to certain principles. So sometimes the when the objective function isn't clear on what principle you're standing for and you're just trying to get diversity of political opinion, that's not that there's no role for that. But for us, we're saying we want um, to find a well-defined group that has a common ground and stands for something, right? So we're definitely oriented to stand for something. And I think something that's um, interesting is, you know, I do think even within the political, let's say within the Democratic Party or otherwise, you might have progressives or more moderates or otherwise. And I think sometimes there's a sense that there's some middle that doesn't stand for anything in the country. You know what I mean? That like, if you're in the middle, you don't really, you know, like the extreme stand for something and the middle is just kind of without an agenda. And I, our perspective is that most Americans do believe in things, whether you're sitting or, you know, in the middle or not. And our agenda is one that can capture um, a pretty broad spectrum, including a lot of the disengaged middle or, you know, those who just kind of tune out in politics or are, you know, or consider themselves moderate in various ways, but do stand for something. So I think really defining what it means to stand for something in our democracy, how we're staking out that ground um, is something more implicit in our work, but I do think um, I do think can be powerful and also allow us to work with different types of groups, right? Because if we know what we stand for, I always felt like when we started the organization, um, I was a little bit careful about uh, partnering too much in the beginning because I felt we had a need for our members to first really understand the context and have a perspective. Um, and be able to participate effectively with other organizations. Um, and so now we're at a place where I think we can do that in a much more nimble way because we have a core of people who actually kind of have um, an appreciation for the role that they're playing um, with others. Great. Yeah. So Leadership Now Project also created a pathway for business leaders that were tuned out. You know, you were like saying, don't tune out, engage. 
This is important. This will affect you both in the short term, medium term, and long term. So you've created a pathway for tuning in in a way that uh, fits their interests too. So that's really a powerful role that the Leadership Now project is playing. So I wanted to ask you, so you've been at this for a number of years now, it's 2023, and we're, uh, what is your diagnosis of uh, American democracy now? How do you think it's doing? Has it gotten better over the last six years or has it gotten worse over the last six years that you've been doing uh, the work that you've been doing? I'm torn on, I, some days I feel one way versus the other, I, but I think there are basically countervailing pieces to this, right? So there's, uh, so I think on balance, I'm an optimist, which you <laughs> are, well, are as well. And there are things that I see that do give me real hope in terms of the evolution of our system, but there are certainly very significant risk factors that remains. So I can start with the risks so I can end with the good things. But um, I think on the on the risk factor, it's dangerous. I mean, we and I, I would not be alone in, in, in saying this with many of the Republicans that we work with, that that having a political party, though, that is not fully functional, that is has a fair bit of the party not believing in the legitimacy of elections and is, you know, struggling to define itself uh, and losing a lot of its moderate wing is dangerous, right? We actually need two parties to, that are um, able to debate on the level of ideas um, and not, you know, be in a fight even over the legitimacy of the system. So that is really worrying. Um, we obviously are about to have an election next year, which may be a repeat of the 2020 election. Um, that is also worrying. Um, and, you know, obviously we're in the midst of having a presidential candidate in Trump who is indicted on multiple counts, et cetera. So those are, I think, worrying factors that some combination of, in one sense, have a set of the country really doubting the system at its core. And then in another sense, for the those who don't actually fully doubt the system in that way, but just delegitimizing politics, not wanting, you know, people just feeling like this is absurd or <laughs> otherwise like something that is not um, credible or, or serious. So I think that over that's, those are all really worrying and they're significant um, and it will take us some time to um, even if we get kind of out of, the, if the current context evolves to a place where we don't have some big risks, I think it will take time to get out of. The, the last piece on the risk side that I'll say is, I mean, I think around the 2024 election, we do see there are risks of political violence. There are risks, you know, some of the proposals that are in the public domain around how institutions would be changed or dismantled, the proposals that are out there. Um, are worrying in terms of our democracy if you, um, for instance, had another Trump presidency. And I think that is, um, that's really, you know, those are real risk factors and, and concerning both in terms of our own institutions, credibility in the, of, in the world and how we would operate in that context. I think, so all of those are, um, you know, non-trivial <laughs> significant <laughs> concerns, right? Major About, challenges, yeah. Yes, yeah. Uh, um, you know, on the flip side, I will say that the level of 
engagement and mobilization in a more holistic sense around our democracy um, is hardening in many ways. We were just engaged in Ohio. There was a special election that was um, called that would have raised the threshold for ballot initiatives from 50 to 60 percent, really undermining citizens' ability to weigh in on their own policy. Um, and that was soundly defeated in a you know, special election no one expected in the heat of August. <laughs> and we saw business leaders mobilize. We saw many different groups mobilize in that election to say, look, this is just bad for democracy. It's bad for our state. It's bad for business, et cetera. And it was defeated 57 to 43 um, percent, even though it was called by the side who thought they were going to win and who lost. And we've seen that ballot initiatives have been a place where we've seen citizens really weigh in. Michigan in 2018 had objective redistricting ballot initiative that just came into effect in the 2022 election. And it's really transformed how the state legislature is operating, who's get, who gets elected, how people are participating um, and create a lot of dynamism in that state. So we do see uh, that. And just like day to day, I mean, the level of interest in my peers in um, understanding our system and, you know, so it's concern, but it's engagement, right? And so um, I'm, I, you know, I do get hope out of that. And I feel like there's just incredible people I get to work with every day that are really um, concerned about the system. But, you know, we have our work cut out for us. So we like, you're, I think, People are a little tired because we've been <laughs> um, kind of worrying about uh, these issues for some time. But, you know, I think we have to uh, keep at it. Um, and I do see the path to a, um, a system that's more dynamic um, and responsive. Like, I, I, I can't see that, you know, where how it can evolve. Can it's not guaranteed, but I can envision it. <laughs> okay. Well, that is actually a great segue to what I wanted to ask you, which is, you're a mom, you have young daughters, you, I'm a father and grandfather, and I'm thinking about the future of how uh, my, you know, these people and all people and all families are going to evolve over the next 10, 20, 30, 50 years. So what is your vision? If you had a magic wand and you could optimize uh, American democracy or revitalize the U.S. democracy, what would be your top three priorities? I won't put them in order of, you know, high, I'll, I'll give three and maybe then I'll talk about order afterwards. So the, okay. <laughs> the first uh, one is I do think there are genuinely systemic changes that can really um, make the system more effective and dynamic. And on my short list would be objective redistricting, attend gerrymandering, ranked choice voting. I think there's also some really interesting proposals around uh, expanding the House of Representatives, creating... Uh, designing the system in a way that uh, creates more proportional representation type of flavors to it so you can have more diversity in terms of who represents and maybe even open a door for more parties over the time, which are over time. Um, hmm. But I think opening up the system, making it more competitive and dynamic, the kind of closed primary system um, and heavily gerrymandered uh, districts combined um, really don't allow for robust democracy because you have like the same people uh, serving for very long periods of time and not representing a uh, diverse population. So I think there are some real systemic changes to do. I think the second is making 
engagement in politics and policy a high status respected thing to do as so mm -hmm. to some extent when you're at a place where people and this is pre um, Trump pre current there's still a bit of a feeling that like being a political leader is a you know the people who do that are either not impressive or corrupt they're out for themselves or yeah whatever. or just you know it's it's not an aspirational thing to do and that's a, a that doesn't mean there aren't some amazing people end up doing it and i think we have you know people who go against all of that those uh, stereotypes but if the overriding perception is that being a political leader is neither is both some combination of craven and corrupt and not impressive, um, that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so I mm. think there's evolution there. I think we've seen a lot, of, you know, we see things like run for something, people being mobilized, running for local office, national office. We have the seeds of that, but it really yeah. is a sea change in culture to it mm. be really respected, to serve in a political office while demanding really high expectations of our political leaders, right? You know, if, if that's gonna be part of it, then you really have to be willing to throw people out who don't meet those expectations. So um, that's the second thing that I would say is really um, part of that, that vision of the future. And then finally, I would say pursuing policies that are both thoughtful and, and feasible, but transformative, which seems kind of inconsistent. <laughs> um, but I find there's a lot, a lack of creativity often in thinking about how we can um, make policies to address our biggest challenges like climate change, like creating more opportunity. Um, and uh, I think I don't think it has to be inconsistent to be kind of innovative and ambitious with also having an understanding of what can really get done. And I think that was actually in PEPFAR and HIV AIDS, that was the really interesting thing about getting that program done. It was ambitious. It was saying, you know, we want billions of dollars of American resources to go to solve the AIDS crisis. Um, it, you know, but there was a path to do that. And sometimes my frustration is that those who want to have ambitious policy have interesting ideas, but there's just like no path. You know what I mean? It's like bold without any path, implementable path, or it's, you know, boring and implementable. <laughs> and I feel like there is, there is, there is something there. So we need to have like a lot of dynamism on how we kind of make policy and do things in innovative ways paired with great talent and systems that incentivize the right behavior. And then everything will be fine. <laughs> yeah. 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 Those are great. That's a great, you know, agenda of systemic reform and these other elements, the culture of political leaders being uh, respected and uh, it's a career path for, the best and brightest in our country, and then you know, creating transformational policies that actually can get done. I think that was your th three-point agenda. That Thank you, you for find. distilling that into. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we could spend another hour going into each of those, um, but uh, we wanted to take wet everyone's appetite about uh, what's possible. And so I think uh, that was a great, a great sharing that you did.
I always appreciate your, your thinking and your innovation. I want to uh, go back to one thing that you said. And uh, you said that when I asked you about the state of our democracy now, you said, well, some days I think this, some days I think that. So I really wanted to ask you a personal question. Like sometimes I'll speak for myself. I get really despairing and hopeless and I'm just like, whatever, there's nothing I can do. And then I've had to uh, find out that revolutionary optimism is a cure for me when I'm despairing. I can take it. I can be committed to something. I can take a stand. So I wanted to ask you, what do you do when you're feeling hopeless and despairing? Or do you ever feel that way? And if you do, how do you how do you personally like transition back to that optimistic uh, Daniela? Um, no, I, I do. Uh, you know, I, I do have those fears sometimes. I think I found I felt it most significantly leading up to the 2022 election because um, we did have quite a number of election deniers on the ballot, including for in races for governor and secretary of state. And those we knew would be the consequential decision makers in a 2024 election. And so if you had people who had ran on delegitimizing the system, overseeing the system, it was incredibly dangerous. Uh, and so I, in gaming out, you know, how that would play out if the outcomes were uh, were bad. That was really very worrying to me. And I did have that feeling in the lead up to the 2022 election that we were really kind of at a, at a big risk moment and one that maybe wasn't as obvious as a presidential election, you know, mm, yeah. like had become very obvious when, when you looked one, one level below that. Um, obviously that Election deniers almost uniformly lost at those highest levels of government, of uh, governor and secretary of state. I was very heartened by that, um, uh, really heartened by that, because that was, you know, across many, you know, six different states in different contexts with different types of candidates. So I thought that was really encouraging and we had been actively engaged in that. But, you know, I think it's still there's uh, it's can be daunting um, when you take all of those issues and climate change and, and everything else. And I think a basic element is just getting to work on doing, <laughs> bringing what you can bring to the table on that. And that's, um, sometimes that's like, sounds like avoidance, but it's also um, kind of how I've awesome, often um, seen my role is to be a doer and to, um, just do what I can and bring my networks to bear in um, problem solving, right? So just kind of jump into problem solving mode, knowing that, you know, uh, no matter what, it is no single effort or individual or group that transforms all of this. So being willing to accept that you're going to work really hard and you're going to have your pieces and you won't always know what the direct line was between what you did and where it came out, but that that's like na the nature of citizenship of, <laughs> of in our, in our work. So I think that really helps. And I think the thing that ultimately, of course, is so fundamental to me is having two daughters who are amazing, who are going to grow up in <laughs> the world that we're creating and our obligation to our, our children and our um, fellow <laughs> Americans and uh, the global community is really high, you know, especially for those of us who've had the privilege of seeing a lots of different um, pieces of the picture. Um, 
right? Having worked in different contexts and different sectors and with different leaders, I, I think I do feel like I have an ability to connect dots in a way that I want to use um, for this purpose. So, yeah. So, really well, the thank you so of much. It. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And, you know, you're the kind of person that took citizenship seriously. And when you saw that you had an opportunity to engage, to innovate, to be entrepreneurial, and to create this business leaders movement, I really see it as a movement of business leaders who are principled in their commitment to strengthening our democracy. That's extraordinary. That's an extraordinary contribution. So you could have easily tuned out, right? You could have said, ah, I'm going to go do something else. And you did. So thank you for that. And thank you for being on the podcast. And thanks for all you do in the world. Really appreciate you. Thanks. And thanks for all you do, Paul. Hi, everyone. I'm really excited to uh, undertake the diagnostic review of Daniela Blue Ayers, who we just heard from on the podcast, to assess where she's at in her journey of becoming or being a revolutionary optimist. Wow, she is one. And we got to see and learn about her journey and her wisdom and insights as as she works to uh, ensure that we have the strongest possible democracy. An authentic democracy is what she's aiming for. Uh, I think uh, from my perspective, it was really important uh, that Daniela showed how, when she identified how dysfunctional the federal government was op- is operating, and when she saw the democracy crisis, and she saw that she has a special relationship with the business sector, that bringing all that together, she could go forward with an innovation uh, like the Leadership uh, Now project, which is actually a leaders movement of, of leaders, cross-partisan or interpartisan uh, from the business sector that are committed to protecting our democracy. So that was really like, she made that choice. So thank you, Daniela, for being so bold and brave and stepping into the fray. Uh, the work of the Leadership Now project is uh, really important in terms of identifying critical solutions to our democracy and uh, deploying resources behind those innovations uh, to really uh, bring forward demonstrations and examples. And they're taking action now on matters that are threatening uh, our democracy, like they uh, joined, they filed an amicus brief in support of the Disney uh, Corporation position against the government of Florida for the repression and oppression of corporate views which is a threat to all corporations, that kind of uh, overreach and oppression that the DeSantis government was intending. So I think that it's timely and it's urgent. And finally, at a personal level, I think Daniela drives her passion for action and her commitment to this cause by looking at the democracy that we're gonna leave behind for her daughters, for all of our children and for all of our grandchildren. That is what fuels her in part. And uh, also, I think she shared honestly that we're in a dire situation, that our democracy is being threatened right now by powerful forces, including the MAGA movement and the folks that don't want a democracy, um, cor- corporate leaders or political leaders who, don't, who are going for uh, authoritarian rule. 
And we know that that's uh, coming out of the Christian nationalist movement. There are some corporate leaders in the MAGA movement that have gotten caught up in this, uh, this, this approach to our future, which we will not tolerate and we will stop and end. So in that sense, uh, we are revolutionary optimists with the folks uh, in Daniela's movement, the business leaders, leadership now movement of leaders. So thank you all for listening and check out the Leadership Now Project and learn more about the important work of Daniela Boulouers and all of her colleagues in the Leadership Now Project. Thanks and have a great day. Are you ready to be part of the revolution? To learn more about revolutionary optimism, please visit drpaulzeitz.org. To explore building movements, please visit unifymovements.org. If you like this show, be sure to follow on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. Revolutionary Optimism, transforming the world one episode at a time.